0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
1: Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
0: Wow. Wow. Now, tell me
1: about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I
0: said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
0: On today's podcast, you'll hear an interview I did with Professor Brendan Sims. Brendan is the author of a new biography of Hitler, which argues that the Nazi dictator's thinking was dominated by an abiding obsession with Britain and America. I headed to Peterhouse College in Cambridge, where Brendan is based, to find out more. I think it would be reasonable to guess that there isn't really anyone in world history who has been more discussed written about than Adolf Hitler. Why did you think that a new biography of Hitler was necessary or
1: needed? Because I think that some of the most important things that we think we know about him are actually not true. So, for example, that uh, communism and the Soviet Union was his main enemy. Um, I argue that's not the case. It's actually Anglo-American capitalism. So that's a fairly fundamental point, I think. That has been missed in the previous literature.
0: The surtitle or the subtitle of your book is Only the World Was Enough. Can you explain why that's the case?
1: What I was trying to say was that although Hitler began by trying essentially just to establish a, a role for Germany among other great or superpowers uh, in the world, in other words, not he wasn't actually heading for world domination for Germany, the way in which uh, events unfolded made it imperative, from his point of view, I stress, not not in an abstract sense, but from his point of view, made it imperative uh, to seek something like world domination because that was the only way he could make uh, the world safe for Germany. How so? Well, because essentially, from his point, and I stress from his point of view, uh, although he was seeking some form of parity with the other great actors, principally the United States and the British Empire, he felt that that intent that desire had not been reciprocated. Uh, I hasten to say for very good reasons, Uh, but once he realised that was the case, then he had to try and carve out a a more extensive role, an exclusive role for Germany on the world stage.
0: As you mentioned earlier, the focus of the book essentially is that Hitler's concern about the Anglo-US capitalist world order shaped his entire career. Can you tell us a bit about his attitude toward Britain and America?
1: Well, the roots of it go back to the First World War, because the First World War was decisive for the uh, development of his worldview in two important respects. First of all, he spent most of it fighting the British Empire, as opposed to, say, the French or the Russians. Uh, Of course, he never served on the Eastern Front, for example, uh, during the First World War. And so he comes out of the First World War with a very strong sense of the toughness of the British, that they're the enemy, really, which had done... Uh, for the German Reich, or at least had held up the German Reich at the decisive moment during the First World War. So that's one enduring impression. The other thing he takes out of the First World War, and we know this from what he says in the 1920s, uh, is his encounter with uh, the United States, Uh, in particular his encounter with the first American prisoners in the summer of 1918. Uh, And Hitler deduces from that encounter uh, a particular worldview about what had gone wrong uh, with the German Reich uh, in the course of the 19th and early 20th century.
0: I think that's something very interesting in your book because often when we talk about Hitler's ideology about the German people, it's it's put in uh, terms of strength and, um, as you say, w- domination. But mm-hmm. you suggest that he was actually quite insecure about the state of the German people.
1: That's right. Um, the, the key point I'm trying to get across is that although uh, the so-called negative eugenics of, of Hitler were extremely uh, murderous. Uh, for example, involving uh, the killing of, of six million uh, Jews, the murder of Gypsies, and other so-called uh, undesirables. That even once that was achieved, or had would have been achieved from his point of view, uh, you were still only getting to what one might loosely call first base. In other words, that would not be sufficient to ensure the survival of the German people and of the German Reich in a highly competitive world, which is dominated not only, in his view, by the power of so-called world Jewry, but also of the Anglo-Saxon powers, who are in turn uh, racially uh, extremely strong. Uh, And he had a profound sense of Germany's demographic and one might say racial weakness. Uh, And he argued this essentially uh, because he saw uh, Germany as a fragmented polity. Uh, a a country which was historically divided between Protestants and Catholics ever since the Reformation, uh, divided uh, by class, uh, divided by ideology, and above all, also divided regionally. Uh, He's profoundly concerned, for example, uh, by the phenomenon of Bavarian separatism, something which I think hasn't received enough attention uh, in studies of Hitler in the 1920s. Uh, For example, the 1923 coup uh, attempted coup is as much a move against Bavarian separatism as it is against the central government.
0: And how did this compare with how he viewed America and Britain?
1: Well, it's it's the other side of the same coin. So if, uh, uh, on the one hand, you see Anglo-America as the kind of racial uh, paragon, uh, as it were the embodiment of everything that's gone right from his point of view, in racial history, in other words, a strong existing Anglo-Saxon Nordic spine which has been reinforced by waves of, of German emigration um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, a German Reich which has been weakened by this historical fragmentation that I alluded to earlier, uh, undermined by successive waves of emigration, then these two things are, are, as it were, mutually reinforcing. They're in a Germany is, from his point of view, in a kind of a negative spiral
0: So as well as this um, threat that he felt um, America and Britain posed, Hitler also had a lot of admiration for what he saw as the Anglo-US world. Can you give us some examples of of aspects of Britain and America that he aspired to?
1: Well, probably the most striking um, area of of admiration is his admiration, not only for the British Empire, which is well known as as a project of colonisation, uh, overseas, uh, but particularly also for settler colonialism in the United States, which he sees as the model uh, for the Eastern uh, expansion. In fact, the Eastern expansion is intended to create not so much a British uh, India-style uh, arrangement, but, but more particularly a kind of uh, a Western uh, colonization of the American West model. Um, so that will be the, the most striking Uh, example of admiration. Admiration of these countries as the repositories of racial value, uh, which is related to the first uh, instance, of course. Uh, He sees them as being constructed around an Anglo-Saxon spine, which has then been uh, reinforced by the uh, emigration from Europe, but particularly also from the German Reich, uh, of the so-called high-value Nordic elements which have then been absorbed and refined to create this um, extremely strong racial core, both in the British Empire uh, and in the United States. Now, if you add to that admiration for the technological uh, and consumer phenomenon that is the United States, he's very, Hitler is very explicit in the 1920s that the United States is, is culturally attractive, it's economically attractive, he admires a system of national parks. Uh, there really is... Uh, You know, there there are only a small number of quite important, admittedly, areas of of US life, but most that he doesn't admire, but most of the United States, actually, uh, he's profoundly in awe of.
0: One specific um, example you give is the inspiration that he took from US segregation laws. I wonder whether you could speak a bit about that.
1: Is that Hitler's preoccupation is not uh, with with African Americans? In fact, that's a phenomenon he took virtually no interest in. The, The only known reference to my knowledge, uh, to slavery is actually a negative one, where it refers to uh, the slave trade as a barbaric phenomenon. Um, What he's profoundly concerned with is uh, what he regards as the low-value migration into the United States of Eastern Europeans, particularly also of Eastern European Jews. So what he's referring to with admiration uh, is the 1924 uh, uh, Immigration Act, which imposes quotas and, of course, discriminates against Eastern Europeans. Um, That is what he admires. And what he's really saying is, why can't we have the same in Germany? Why is it that, again, I stress from his point of view, we have a process of, if you like, negative selection, where the best Germans are going overseas as emigrants. And from his point of view, lower quality migration is taking their place.
0: This idea about um, German emigration comes up again and again and again in the book. Can you expand a bit on um, Hitler's attitudes towards it.
1: This is probably the most important new aspect of the book, uh, something that hasn't been talked about at all by his biographers and has virtually not been mentioned by any other historian whatsoever. Uh, But essentially, uh, the importance of emigration is that Hitler believed that in the course of the 18th, 19th and early 20th century, uh, the German Reich had been severely weakened by emigration, which was the result, essentially, of the lack of space. And that this migration, as I said earlier, had uh, reinforced her rivals. And that in time of war, these migrants, and this was a crucial point, would come back as enemy soldiers. And this is how he interpreted uh, these American prisoners that I alluded to um, earlier on. In the 1920s, he comes back uh, on a number of occasions uh, to that moment, and he says these were the descendants of German immigrants who'd gone to the United States and come back as, as enemy soldiers. And in fact, during the Second World War, he again refers to the uh, uh, fact that Germany is in some ways at war with its own migrants. Uh, it's quite irony, of course, that in uh, Dwight Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, you had a, a German-American coming back to Klobber um, the Fatherland in uh, General uh, Spatz, uh, commander of the U.S. Air Force, who, of course, uh, was closely involved in the destruction of German cities, in particular German industry, again, another German-American. Uh, so these are profound ironies that Hitler actually um, brought about the very thing he most feared. Uh, but this emigration argument is central. And of course, it is the underpinning, it is the reason for the project of living space in the East. Um, and of course, the project of living space in the East is well known. Uh, what's not the connection that is not made is to the, the phenomenon of, of immigration.
0: Why do you think that that connection hasn't been made before?
1: I think there are a number of reasons. The first is that um, at a much earlier stage, uh, his remarks on this were not known. Uh, so that to be found in the so-called second book, uh, which was only published um, uh, in the 1960s, um, and many other remarks were in speeches made in the 1920s, which were um, uh, only published over the last 10, 15 years. Um, that said, I am surprised that, given that this information uh, was in the public domain, it hasn't uh, achieved more resonance. And some of the speeches I cite from the Second World War uh, were actually in a very old collection of speeches edited by Max de Mara. So they've been hiding, if you like, in, in plain sight. The fact that he encountered these soldiers um that he simply didn't didn't just make this up, as it were. Uh, That's something that I myself have actually discovered or proven uh, in the sense that when I read these speeches, I went back into the archives and I found archival reference, hitherto unknown, uh, which I then published uh, quite recently, uh, that he did actually encounter these soldiers. So this took place um, and it it had a substantial impact on his thinking.
0: I wonder whether you could just... um Give us a slight narrative of Hitler's encounter with American soldiers for people who might not know about that.
1: Right. So we're talking about the uh, summer of uh, uh, mid July of 1918. So the German army is on its final, last, if you like, desperate push to try and defeat uh, the British and the American, the British and the French rather, on the Western Front before the Americans arrive in force. But the first Americans are already uh, present, um, and Hitler is given two American soldiers to escort back to brigade headquarters. And the fact that this actually happened uh, is uh, recorded in the uh, records of the um, List Regiment. And then he subsequently interpreted that encounter as the encounter with German immigrants. And he then argued, saying that this was, if you like, the payoff for hundreds of years of demographic hemorrhaging of the highest value German blood, to fertilize, this is a phrase he used, literally, he used the phrase fertilize, to fertilize uh, the territory of the enemy. Um, And uh, he basically also argues, and this is highly unflattering to the German people, he says that uh, the people who emigrate are, of course, the people with the most get-go. So he actually has a positive Uh, emigration stroke immigration narrative, if you like. But for him, that's a cause for anxiety, because logically speaking, the German people that exist after 1919 are, if you like, the dregs. They're the Germans who have not emigrated to the United States uh, or to the British Empire. And so you see this thinking, uh, not merely in the 1920s, as I said, but also during the Second World War, when he's addressing, for example, in the summer of 1944, when these Germans have once again returned as as General Eisenhower and and General Spatz, Uh, he's addressing an audience uh, in July 1944, an audience of um, uh, German uh, business leaders, and he says to them, "Um, I know you're all very anxious about these German engineers, meaning the German engineers who are in America, who are uh, 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 basically powering ahead in, in American industry, building the weapons that are killing Germans. And then he says to them, which is almost surreal, he says, but don't worry, I have German engineers as well, which is is an odd thing, really, to say to a German audience uh, if you're the Chancellor or the Fuhrer of the German Reich. Um, But I think it illustrates this profound sense of anxiety around German emigration and this sense of being at war with your own racial stock, as he sees it.
0: Did this um, anxiety lead to any concrete policies from Hitler? Did he have any um, policies to do with emigration?
1: He did, indeed. Um, so, uh, uh, first of all, um, after 1933, he um, engaged in a couple of pretty high-profile uh, recoveries, one might say, of people who had emigrated to the United States, uh, former regimental comrades, who were brought, who were brought back... Uh, with considerable uh, fanfare uh, and with the narrative proposition these are Germans who went to the United States. They found it not to their liking. In other words, do not be seduced by the American dream, but stay here uh, in the, um, in the uh, Third Reich. Then uh, in the late 1930s, uh, he briefly experiments with the idea of an exchange. Uh, this is, again, if you like, an upsetting, really quite grotesque plan, that he has, uh, in in effect, uh, to exchange German-Americans for German Jews. Because he has the problem, in inverted commas, that he wants both to expel the Jews and to uh, deprive them of their wealth. And the difficulty he has is that, while some countries are prepared to accept Jews, virtually none want to take Jews who are, you know, completely indigent. Um, And that's on the one hand. On the other hand, they are German-Americans, who are writing to the Foreign Office saying that they wish to leave the United States because you know they're experiencing discrimination or they haven't made it economically, uh, but they're having difficulties in returning across the Atlantic. And so briefly experiments with this idea uh, of an exchange. Uh, and then later, of course, during the Second World War, uh, when it comes to plans for uh, settling the Eastern Territories, which he controls uh, in the, from the summer of 1941 through to the late summer of 1942, He specifically says that these territories are to be the Mississippi of the Volgas, to be the Mississippi uh, of the German Reich, and that he hopes to settle uh, these areas, not only with the demographic um, overflow from Europe, uh, but also with returning German-Americans.
0: To pick up on your point there about um, his anti-Semitism and his policies towards Jews, Um, you suggest that you can't understand Hitler's anti-Semitism without understanding his Mm anti-capitalism. Can you explain the connections that he drew between Britain and the US and what he saw as international Jewry?
1: Yes. He regards uh, Anglo-America not only, and this is somewhat of a paradox, not only as the repository of the high racial Nordic value, but also at the same time, as the protagonist of international capitalism. So he sees London and New York as hubs of international capitalism, which is dominated by the Jews, in his view, but at the same time is also a phenomenon in and of itself. So sometimes he talks about Jewish international finance capitalism, and then he sometimes talks about Jewish and non-Jewish international finance capitalism. And he sees this international finance capitalism as the real uh, ruler of the world, if you like, as uh, a force which has, in inverted commas, in his parlance, enslaved Germany, um, and that, if you, if you like, as has reduced Germany, and again, this is a phrase he used quite frequently, to the status of a colony, so that the uh, outside powers and international finance capitalism uh, have the role of overseer, another phrase he used, of uh, the German plantation. So the Germans are, are simply slaves. Um, they've been relegated in this international racial hierarchy uh, to the standard of, of Africans. He's quite explicit about this. He uses terms that perhaps I shouldn't use on a podcast. Um, uh, but um, that's, that is where he sees the link between international finance capitalism, so-called world jury, and Anglo-America. And the paradox is that while he argues that Jews are corrupt uh, and enfeeble states... For some reason, it doesn't seem to corrupt or enfeeble the British Empire or the United States, except um, insofar as it induces what he regards as a form of false consciousness in those states. In other words, that these states don't recognize, as they should do from his point of view, that their true community of interest is with the German Reich as opposed to fighting the German Reich.
0: Those two paradoxical strands that you talk about there, um, well, and we've spoken about a lot here, the fear of and also the admiration of um, Britain and America, which do you think was the dominant strand or can you not um, untangle the two?
1: Well, I think they're difficult to disentangle because um, after the breach, admiration turns to fear and the admiration in turn is driven by fear. So what you're talking about... Uh, at the beginning, is fear produced by the experience of the First World War, strengthened by the experience of the punitive peace settlement, exacerbated by everything that happens in German domestic politics uh, in the early uh, 1920s. Uh, That fear uh, then produces admiration. That admiration then produces the attempt at a rapprochement seriously intended and genuine on his part, but always based on a completely, um, from our point of view, cockeyed understanding of what Britain and the United States would actually agree to and what would be compatible with their values. Uh, And once that admiration had been repulsed, then increased hatred and anxiety and a sense of rejection, which in turn increased fear.
0: So it was a vicious circle. It's a vicious circle. This new reading that you offer here also alters the way that we should think about Nazi-Soviet relations. Mm -hmm. Can you explain how?
1: I think it also alters it in this way, that Hitler saw, as I say, Anglo-American capitalism as the main enemy, and he saw the Soviet Union and Bolshevism certainly as as a major threat, and the salience of that threat varies over time. But he sees Communism, the Soviet Union, essentially as instruments of international capitalism and Anglo America. Now, that might sound puzzling, but actually, when you look at his analysis, it makes sense within its own terms. What he's arguing is that international capitalism and Anglo America cannot tolerate alternative national and economic projects. Hitler always says, I'm in favor of national capitalism properly understood and domesticated and and subjected, obviously, to the national will. And he says that Anglo-American international capitalism can't accept these national capitalisms. What does it do? Well, first of all, it slaps on tariffs, it mobilizes international coalitions, and it resorts to the instruments of domestic fragmentation. So it supports, for example, communism, agitation, trade unions, to bring down national capitalism. And so, what seems paradoxical, i.e., uh, uh, the the sort of community of interest of international capitalism and of uh, uh, Soviet communism, begins to make sense because communism and fragmentation is an instrument used by national capitalism, by international capitalism, to break down national economies and to force them essentially uh, to, to be subjugated to international capitalism. That's the one point. The other point is that uh, the attack on the Soviet Union in 1941 and the quest for Lebensraum is not actually driven primarily by concern about communism. It's driven by concern with Anglo-America. And living space in the East is simply a convenient, uh, closely located area you can control in a way that overseas expansion doesn't work because the British and the Americans, but particularly the British... Control the seas. Um, And so the attack on the Soviet Union in that sense is nothing personal from the point of view of of communism. Rather, he sees communism as an opportunity. He says these poor Soviet Union, they're afflicted with the virus of communism, uh, and therefore uh, they'll be more easy to take over. So, from all those points of view, there's a clear hierarchy in Hitler's mind of enemies. uh, And the Soviet Union and communism, while serious. Um, uh, serious threats uh, are by no means as serious as, as the threat from the British Empire uh, and from the United States. And you see this, in fact, during the Second World War in the distribution of resources, contrary to what many things you might read about the, uh, the, the overall importance of the Eastern Front.
0: This could be a very um, paradoxical ideology, as you've mentioned, to get your head around. How do you see it um, developing, changing, evolving over the time of um, Hitler's political career? Or do you see it as relatively static throughout?
1: What's interesting is that it is pretty much static throughout. There are variations. uh, There is development. Uh, During the early 1920s, for example, he does briefly toy with the idea that Communism might be transitory uh, in the Soviet Union, that the the so called true Russia will return, and that in that situation, Russia would actually be uh, a suitable partner for the German Reich. Once he's clear, this is by 1924, 25, that this is not the case, he begins to develop the Lebensraum conception. Because then, of course, for the reasons I've given, the Soviet Union is ripe for the taking. And he doesn't really retreat from that or resile from that, um, in some senses, until uh, the end of his career. There are some moments, for example, in uh, 1936, at the time of the Spanish Civil War, when uh, Stalin is intervening in, in, in the Iberian Peninsula, where he begins to, to um, see the Soviet threat in, in, in more explicit terms. Uh, there are moments in, in 1941, when he's trying to justify the attack on Russia, when the attack on uh, when the anti-communist rhetoric uh, comes up again, but other than that, it is really pretty consistent all the way through. The main enemy is Anglo-America and capitalism. Uh, it's it's right until the very end. Even in his last will and testament, his um, you know he's, he he talks you know even as the Russians are overrunning Berlin, he's talking more about the bombing campaign. He's talking more about uh, international capitalism. Uh, and then he is talking about uh, the Soviet Union uh, and Bolshevism.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
1: It's very hard to say anything conclusively about his personality because so much of it was artifice. Famously, of course, he, he practiced gestures in front of mirrors. There are um, well-known pictures showing him uh, doing that. And, of course, his image, as you say, was carefully curated. <laughs> Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack,
0: just to rewind the clock a little bit something that historians have grappled with for a long time is is what facilitated the rise of Hitler and you suggest it's partly because he quote made fewer mistakes than everybody else Mm -hmm. and he was essentially facilitated by the failure of others why do you think that people um, misjudged or underestimated him so grossly both in terms of his capabilities and his intentions Mm -hmm.
1: Well, the first thing I should say is that my book isn't really about how others reacted to him. And so it's not an explanation uh, of German society. uh, And it's not even an overall interpretation of German history. So in that sense, a very Hitler-centric biography. Um, There are other biographies, for example, Ian Kershaw's or Peter Longrich's, which take a wider angle view of this. um, And that's certainly a very legitimate thing to do. Having said all that, (laughs) to answer your question... Um, I think that uh, it's partly because to, uh, and this is not particularly original, that to many he seemed ridiculous. Um, They didn't take him seriously. Um, Others thought that they could manipulate him, that they could go with him a certain uh, part of the way and then ditch him. Uh, So famously, uh, Papen, for example, and and Hindenburg, the the president, uh, believed that um so, in the end, they just for all these reasons they underestimated him, and he had the knack um for uh, uh at that time of good timing that he he knew he he you know he turned down offers uh in late nineteen thirty two that he considered insufficient um and he cashed in his chips in early nineteen thirty three at a moment when the tide was just about to go out perhaps It was maybe the last moment at which it was possible to to, to take over power.
0: And do you think that was a case of luck or canny judgment on his part?
1: A large part of it is luck uh, and a large part of it is is, is judgment. Um, But, you know, statesmen have uh, got to make their luck uh, as well as um, uh, just have it uh, landing uh, landing on their plate. So it's a bit bit hard to distinguish uh, those two. But, I mean, various things were aligned. In early 1933, that that made this possible, um, and of course, these alignments in, in different forms persisted until uh, the turn of the tide in in 41 through through to 43. Uh, so, good judgment, fifty percent, and perhaps fifty percent good luck.
0: Um, of course, Hitler's image and public face was was heavily cloaked in propaganda, and the volume of material created by him and his regime is is massive. Mm-hmm. How As a biographer, do you cut through all of that Mm. to get to the core? Mm. And when you do get there, what Mm. kind of man do you find?
1: So you addressed a a central difficulty I had, that the the documentation is vast. Um, I have actually read everything that I know him to have written. Obviously, I haven't read every single thing that's happened in the Third Reich or every single book on the Third Reich. And what I did was I adopted a, a funnel principle. In other words, at the beginning, I, I used almost every bit of documentation. Uh, and then um, uh, I narrowed, as it were, as the documentation became greater, I then narrowed the focus in on the man on, on particular aspects and as his, the main uh, lines of his uh, policy and personality um, became clear. So that was my way of getting to grips with the material in terms of the kind of man who emerged um, i think he he it's very hard to say um anything conclusively about his personality because so much of it was artifice famously of course he he practiced gestures in front of mirrors uh, there are um uh, well-known pictures showing him uh, doing that uh, he took all kinds of lessons um and, of course, his image, as you say, was carefully curated from quite an early stage, from, from the 20s. So it's sometimes difficult to tell what you're getting in terms of, of the real Hitler. But insofar as I could grasp him, he is somebody who uh, is, is clearly not psychopathic in any narrowly medical sense. He's, he's obviously politically psychopathic. There's no question about that. Um, but uh, he, he is somebody who relates in some ways normally, to other people, um, who is uh, uh, not afraid with people whom he knows to, un- to, to unburden himself, to unbutton, to talk about his relationships. For example, with people like Goebbels uh, or Emile um, Maurice, Chauffeur, chauffeur, um, somebody who had personal feelings. Um, so you get a bit of the sense of the personality, but that's not my primary preoccupation. What I'm most interested in is, is the beliefs and the policies.
0: So almost that Hitler as a man is not able to be disentangled from Hitler as a politician.
1: Or to put it differently, I don't think there's anything in Hitler the man that tells you anything particularly useful about Hitler the politician. That's the crucial point. So if you were to take, for instance, his relationship with women, which a lot of people uh, are interested in, um, there's no evidence that either Geli Rabal, his niece with whom he had some kind of intense relationship, whether physical or or emotional, or just emotional, it's unclear, uh, and uh, Eva Brown, whom of course he eventually married, um, neither of those two relationships appear to have had any political content. On the other hand, there there were other women like uh, Leni Riefenstahl uh, or Geli Trust, for example, um, where it's you know, it, it was a political relationship. It was an ideological relationship to do with uh, the propagation of the Third Reich. And, and they're more interesting in that sense to me.
0: As a final question, I would ask, what would you want people to take away from your book?
1: The thing to take away is two things. One, that Hitler's main concern was Anglo-American capitalism and not the Soviet Union and Bolshevism. And secondly, that Next to his murderous, in inverted commas, negative eugenics, he also had a um, uh, an equally problematic, in some ways, uh, concept of in inverted commas positive eugenics. In other words, how do I, and this was a phrase he used, raise up in inverted commas the German people to the same level as the Anglo-Americans? That was a huge part of his project, and I think that tends to be overlooked. This project of what he calls racial elevation. Um, uh, was absolutely critical to Hitler's so-called positive eugenics. And essentially Hitler's argument is that the uh, attraction of Anglo-America is one of standard of living. So standard of living and living space are absolutely, inextricably intertwined uh, in in his mind. Because he says that unless we have living space, we will... Uh, and not be able to um, have a proper standard of living. If we don't have a proper standard of living, then people will emigrate. And by proper standard of living, he meant matching the American dream with, this was not a phrase he used, but this is what he effectively meant, the German dream. In other words, that Germans should have access to uh, travel, they should have access to mod comms, to radios, to uh, autobahns, They should be motorized. They should basically have all the things that people in Britain, and particularly in the United States, had. Once they had those, and once they had been engaged in the project of expansion, in an imperialist project, they would then, over decades and over hundreds of years, elevate themselves to the level of Anglo-America. So a point that's really important is timelines with Hitler. Hitler sees himself as part of a really long project of which he will only see the really the beginning. And he sees the British of his time as the British who have developed over hundreds of years of having run the empire, of having acquired by doing, in his view, the so-called superior characteristics. So with Hitler, there's always this tension between timelines. On the one hand, he's always in a hurry because of circumstances, because his life is short, because Germany is in a dire situation. And on the other hand, he realises that what really needs to be done requires hundreds of years and cannot be done in a shorter period.
0: That was Brendan Sims. Brendan's book, Hitler, Only the World Was Enough, is published by Alan Lane. I spoke to Brendan for our monthly books interview, which you can read in the September issue of BBC History magazine. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Fateman. We'll be back on Thursday when Roger Morehouse will be discussing the Nazis' invasion of Poland in
1: 1939. (laughs)